Notice that Paul in Acts 14 and 17 uh, directs people's attention to the creation, to the creator and the creation. In 14, Paul even draws their attention to the providence of God. He provided for them food and everything that people need. The scripture calls us to look at creation and to learn from it. For example, in Proverbs, we read these words, and I'm quoting from the New Living Translation because it brings out the sense uh, uh, more clearly. And I quote, Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for the winter. But you lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. Proverbs does this again in uh, 20, chapter 30. There are four things that the, that on earth that are small, but usually wise, unusually wise. Ants, they aren't strong, but they store up food all summer. Hyrexes, or rock badgers, they aren't powerful, but they make their home among the rocks. Locusts, they have no king, but they march in formation. Lizards, they are easy to catch, but they are found even in king's palaces. I want to finish something that I started a while back, and that is to talk about the gospel. And uh, before I mentioned that God was the creator. Now I want to pick up on that idea, because the gospel involves these four major points, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Today I want to think about creation. God created all things in heaven and on earth, and mankind in his image. That means that mankind, which includes men, women, and their offspring, are image bearers of God. What gives people value is not race or gender, but that they are image bearers of God. And therefore, for example, murder is wrong. Even after the fall, people still bear God's image. Yes, it's been damaged, but they still are image bearers of God. In Genesis 9, we read in verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by blood his, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So, before the fall, man is in God's image. After the fall, man is still in God's image, though it is distorted and damaged. God created mankind, male and female. We read that in Genesis 1.26. He created them to live in harmony with himself, with creation, and with one another. Looking at Genesis 2, we get a glimpse into God's perfect creation. It was very good. First, we notice that God gave mankind dominion over the creation. He was to rule over all the animals. He was also to rule over himself by obeying God's command to not eat of the tree of good and evil. 
He was also given dominion over the garden, and he was to not only till the garden, but protect it and to expand it. As God's vicegerent, mankind was to work and care for the garden. Therefore, work is, is a God-created and good thing. You should never, should never not want to work. Work is not to be avoided, but embraced. Now, we can, we can do what some people call overwork, you know. But we are to work, and we're to take joy in that. And that work included, you know, caring for the produce of the garden, um, and as I said, protecting it and expanding it. The garden was intended to cover the whole earth. That's what we get from the scripture. The whole earth was to be the place where God would walk in the cool of the day with his creatures. The idea that God would dwell among his people is seen in the book of Revelation when, at the consummation when we read these words in Revelation 21, 1-4. And God, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What we read there, the end, is what God intended at the beginning. That's what we look forward to. That's what's called hope. <clears throat> You're not going to live in this world free from pain. I wish I could tell people that they could be free from pain. But you're not going to be. Some people, fortunately, don't have physical pain, but they suffer other kinds of pain. Because pain is part and parcel of our lives. We have to learn to deal with pain from the perspective of, of God, who, yes, we're fallen, but he's given us hope. This world is not our home. And we need to look forward to that time because we are going to suffer. Whether we suffer as Christians or non-Christians, we're going to suffer. It's part of life. But that's not all. Mankind was also created to be in relationship with God. I want you to notice the intimacy of Adam's creation. God formed man from the dust of the ground. He created other creatures from the sea and the ground. And all are said to have the breath of life. All animals, all creatures of God have the breath of life. We pick up on that more clearly in Genesis 7.15 where we read this. <coughs> so they went into the ark of Noah by twos, all flesh in which was the breath of life. So all living creatures have the breath of life. But the difference is this. When God made Adam, we read, then God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. I, I, I had a professor at um, seminary um, who said this, and I never heard it said before. And he said, uh, God breathed into Adam uh, the breath of life. He said, it's like God's holding Adam's head up and the first thing that Adam sees is the face of God. God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam opens his eyes and what does he see first? His God. Well, that speaks of intimacy. Not in a, not in a wrong sense, but in proper sense. That image is repeated. The image of being breathed into is repeated in John 20. After his resurrection, Jesus manifested himself to the apostles, and we read this. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. John 20, 21-23. What was done in the garden resulted in the first creation. What was done to the apostles resulted in the second creation, the new creation. On both occasions, it was breath from the Lord that resulted in life. And intimacy is there, is thereby created. It's implied, especially. We have an intimate fellowship with God. He is our Father. God the Son is our brother. And God the Holy Spirit is the seal of our inheritance. As we read in Ephesians. In Him you also, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, the prey to the praise of His glory. And so we see that in the creation, Adam is, is created to be close to God. Another detail of intimacy is implied by Adam and Eve walking with God. Uh, the image signifies agreement among parties. Um, I think it's Amos 3 that says, can two walk together lest they be agreed? Actually, it's, can two walk together lest they agree upon an appointed time? So the idea of agreement is secondary to the appointment, but it's still there. Um, So they each walk with God, and what that means is it's a close relationship. Um, Fellowship is another term that is used to indicate a close relationship. And we read of Enoch in Genesis 5 that God, he walked with God and he was not for God took him. Well, why did God take him? Because Enoch walked with God. He was close to him. Thirdly, we see that mankind was created to sustain a proper relationship to creation. We see that he named the animals and all creeping things. And therefore, mankind was created with the capacity to organize, observe, identify, and classify. He also was to care for the garden. So man had work to do, and man man was really reigning over the creation in a proper way. He was God's vicegerent. Uh, 
And fourth, we read that mankind was created to have fellowship with one another. Adam and Eve were share, to share a common life with creation and yet over creation. They were to sustain a life of fellowship and communion with God. And they were to sustain a life together as one. We read after God creates Eve and he presents her to Adam that Adam said, At last! <laughs> At last! I've gone, through all these, uh, I've gone through all these animals and I've named them all. I haven't found one that's even close to me, you know. And... At last I see this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We then hear the divine commentary on marriage. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That idea, Those ideas are, are important for us today because they tell us that there was a there was a how could you say it their relationship reflected one of of intimacy and innocency they didn't see that there was anything wrong with being naked until they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then it wasn't God that said being naked was wrong. It was them that decided that nakedness was wrong. Yes, later on in the law, we read that God forbids looking on people's nakedness. But at this point in the revelation of God, they're the ones that made that decision. They were the ones who were ashamed because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, contained in that idea of one flesh is the concept of unity. Men and women, women were to work together in creation and dominion over the creature. Woman was not taken from man's foot to be his slave, which is the view of some cultures about women. And uh, she wasn't taken from his head to rule over him, which is becoming the view of America. She was taken from his side to labor alongside him to the glory of God. So I want to think about this creation as we think about evangelism and preaching the gospel. It begins with God the creator and it begins with his creation. Just like Paul did. We're living in post-Christian times. We're living in... Um, we're living in a time where people are moving, have not, they're not moving away from Christianity. They don't, they don't even understand it or know about it anymore. We used to be able to talk to people and there was some common ground because the culture was influenced by biblical truth. That is no longer true. So now we live in broken times and we're going to talk about that more next week. The focus of this week is on God the Creator who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and mankind, male and female. Man and woman were made image bearers of God. They were created to have fellowship with one another, all of creation, and most importantly with God. There was peace and harmony. Man and woman lived in unity. That is one thing that one flesh implies. Yes, it implies other things, but unity is my focus this morning.
becoming one. Only I'm going to expand that. When you declare the gospel to unbelievers, keep in mind that you don't need to say everything at once. Okay? You know, it's not like you have a dump truck and you're going to back it up and dump the whole load on them. It just that won't work. It might smother them, um, but it won't help. So it is to it is proper to begin your discussions with an unbeliever, starting with the create creator and the creation. Uh, you begin that by offering a counter narrative to the one the unbeliever has. The unbeliever most likely does not believe in God of any kind. So you begin by asking the person to think about some things. And here is where the termite comes in. Let's say that you have a conversation with someone who is not a believer. This person tells you that he or she does not believe in God, uh, that he or she believes that everything evolved from a pool of non-living slime and without purpose. So just as an example, you can say something like, Have you ever considered the termite? Termites are most fascinating. They feed on wood, however they cannot digest the wood. For them to digest the wood, they have have in their digestive tract protozoa that breaks the wood down into sugars that both the termite and the protozoa can digest. And so both live. To quote from sciencing.com, I quote, The protozoa within the termite's digestive system provide the enzymes which can break down the wood. The termites themselves do not have such enzymes in their body. They must rely on the microorganisms in their gut to provide it for them. The protozoa break up the wood cellulose into simple sugars, which both organisms can digest. When the protozoa digests the wood cellulose, they release, they release acidic, acidic acid and other acids that the host termite is able to metabolize. Isn't that amazing? God, God, God. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> With this tidbit of information, you begin to ask how the theory of evolution counts for this phenomenon. Because termites are termites from the very first fossils found which date back some 250 million years if we accept all those time things. Creation Research offered an article which states, creationists maintain termites have always been termites. Looking to the fossil record shows them in sediments dated by evolutionists to be 251 million years old. But they're still termites as they exist today. Other evolutionists feel that they organized in the whatever era 359 million years ago But regardless, no common ancestor of termites has been discovered. And I've, you know, people try to show there's a common ancestor, but there's not. They've never found termites that were not termites. So did the termite just happen to plop into existence prepared this way by evolution? Clearly it could not have lived without the protozoa. So ask your atheist friends how evolutionary theory accounts for the termite. The termite could not have evolved without the protozoa. There could never have been a time when a termite existed without it. Not only does this question evolution, it also points to purpose. The protozoa in the termite is there so that 
it may, uh, so that the termite and the protozoa may digest food, wood and live. And not only does the termite live off the sugars produced, but so does the protozoa. So <clears throat> they both exist together. You see, each of them has DNA, and DNA is information. So from where comes the information? Now, they may, your friends may give you an answer. However, I challenge you to check out their answer to see if it really answers the question you pose. In other words, you know, you don't just go... You, you always begin with people where they are, right? Some people are further along, and you can discuss the gospel. Other people are not as far along, and you need to talk to them. But you need to listen to them and engage in conversation. And going back to creation, and this is just one little example. You can find others, but I liked termites, so I thought that was a good one to use. Because there's, a, there's something about termites that really intrigues me. And it's not their digestive system. It's the way they live. In America, they put nests around houses. If they ever infest your house, you've got a problem. They'll eat wood, they'll eat the wood right out of your walls. That happened to a man I know in his bathroom. He went to take off old tile and the whole the whole wall collapsed on him. Because the termites had devoured the wood. So that that happens in America. It takes time, but I'm going to tell you that they can destroy a house if left unchecked. They really can. Now, in Australia and Africa, they build huge dome-like structures. They're called termitri, termitaria, something like that. Termitaria. And they can be several feet high. In fact, they can be taller than me. Well, how do they construct them? Well, they use their saliva, dung, and soil to construct these amazing mounds that are temperature and moisture controlled cities for the colony. Wow. Words such as engineering, mechanisms, and design are constantly used in articles describing termite nest construction. That came from uh, termite nest architectural design is clearly seen from icr.org. With millions of termites living in a small area, there is bound to be an increase in CO2 levels with additional CO2 contribution from fungus cultivation. The accumulation uh, of this goes on and can be toxic unless it is dissipated to the outside through some kind of ventilation. In addition, there must be thermal insulation control. But how are such controls achieved? Well, good engineering. Atmosphere and CO2 levels are, ex are exchanged via many thousands of millimeter-sized external windows of sorts in the mounds on the outer wall. The termites have been designed with the ability to frequently open and close these tiny windows based upon outside breezes and CO2 accumulation in the nest. But it wouldn't be any good, or it may even be counterproductive, for termites to randomly open and close the windows. The numerous termites must all operate as a unit, a superorganism. 
Did such environmentally induced behavior come about by time and chance or by plan and purpose? Secular scientists took the obvious design of termite nests. Once the construction and thermal regulation questions are answered, then knowledge gained, then the knowledge gained can be applied, guess what? To human building design. Isn't that amazing? We're going to learn human building design by looking at the termite. This is a question. How is it that termites in the millions work to control the quality of life in one of their nests? They don't work randomly. If they did, they would perish. So how is it done? And I quote again. Termites, and I'm not going to tell you the order, termites are eusocial, that is, good social animals with an advanced social organization. Insects that number that can number in the millions Producing, some by, what, what, producing something biologists call a superorganism. This is defined as a colony of termites having features of organization analogous to the properties of a single creature. Wow. Can you imagine that? It's amazing. No. Cool. Well, now, you can... You know, all the hate and the selfishness and the warfare and the American and the American public singing Frank Sinatra's great hit, My Way, you know, that song, I hope. <laughs> I think Solomon might say something to us and it'd be like this. Learn from the termite. You're all acting randomly. You're all acting out your own purposes. You all wanna you want your you wanna you wanna grab your part of the world. And you're not unified. You have no purpose in your life. And it's your scientific, me- it's your scientific materialism that has produced what you're looking at in the world today. That's true in our culture. That's true in our families. And so the, the point is this. Learn, learn from the termite. Just like the lazy person is supposed to learn from the ant. So when you think about declaring the gospel to an unbelieving acquaintance or an unbelieving friend, just remember, you don't have to say everything at once. You just need to start the conversation and start it where they are. That's what Paul did. When they were Jews, he started with the Old Testament and preached from there. When they were unbelievers, like the Gentiles and and Ephesus and other places, he started from where they were. In Lystra and Athens, where did he begin? God is the creator of all things. He began with something that they could get a hold of. They believed in all the gods, but they didn't know, they didn't really know the true God. And so he began where they were. And that's really all we are supposed to do. You need to just start the conversation. Using God's creation to challenge the views of secular unbelief is one way to begin. It's not the only way. It is also, it's also useful in our current crisis because you can challenge people that termites might actually teach us something about living and working together. And you can use that start to start a conversation about the gospel as well. So may God grant us wisdom, like the wisdom of an ant or a termite, to declare the gospel as 
He has called us to do. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank You for Your Word. And I love Proverbs because it it's full of those little, those pithy statements of wisdom. And one thing we all need to learn is wisdom. We need to learn wisdom in, to, in dealing in our, with our relationships in our own homes. We need to learn wisdom in dealing with our relationships at work. And we need to deal, we need to have wisdom in dealing with the issues that we face as a country. So we need wisdom. But we also need wisdom in declaring the gospel. And this is, this was just one way to tell people, to try to get people's attention off of their materialistic, selfish worldview to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we need the Holy Spirit in us that we might be unafraid and unashamed to confront the world around us in wisdom to speak the truth in love. We ask that you would do that, not for us, not so this church grows real big. I don't, we don't even need to think about that. We, we ask that you do it for us so that we might live to the praise of your glory. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.